one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi there, this is Martina Navratilova, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. I wanted to let you know that a few days ago I received a letter from the ITF that I had failed a drug test at the Australian Open. I did fail the test, and I take full responsibility for it. For the past 10 years, um, I have been given a medicine called Mildrenat by my doctor, by my family doctor. And a few days ago, after I received the ITF letter, um, I found out that it also has another name of meldonium, which I did not know. It's very important for you to understand that for 10 years, this medicine was not on WADA's ban list, and I had been legally taking the medicine um, for the past 10 years. But on January 1st, the rules had changed, and meldonium became a prohibited substance, which I had not known. I was given this medicine um, by my doctor for several health issues that I was having back in 2006. I, um, I was getting sick a lot. I was getting the flu. Every couple of months, I had irregular EKG results, um, as well as indications of diabetes with a family history of diabetes. Um, I thought it was very important for me to come out and speak about this in front of all of you because throughout my long career I have been very open and honest about many things and I take great responsibility and professionalism um, in my job every single day and I made a huge mistake and I I've let my fans down I've let the sport down that I've been playing since the age of four that I love so deeply. Um, I know that with this, I, I face consequences, and I've, I don't want to end my career this way, and I really hope that I will be given another chance to play this game. Well, Catherine... What an extraordinary story. A huge surprise on many levels, not least because I think of all the tennis players that we have dealt with, that we've seen over the years, Sharapova has always struck me as a player that shows 
immense attention to detail. Yes, absolutely, and it's a um, it's a very uncharacteristic oversight.、Um, assume you know, I, 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 we have to take it on face value, and I, I am inclined to believe her that it is nothing more than that at this stage.、Um, but nonetheless, still very out of character. You know, this is their lives, it's their profession, it's their duty to be on top of these things. But I mean, it does show you how this is. She, she's confessed to it. She's not even asked for the beta sample to be tested. She said, "Yep, this is something I've been taking for a long time, and it only got added to the banned list in 2016." And actually, a number of athletes from other sports have also very recently tested positive for this. A figure skater today, a prominent、um, ice dancer, announced that she had tested positive for the same substance in exactly the same circumstances. Well, there's no moral distinction between two months ago taking this substance and taking it. Now, what it shows, I think, is that it's a it's perhaps it's not a science at all, really. But I think people think of doping in a very black and white sense, you know, cheating or not cheating. And I think this shows that it's it's really not that black and white. The moral distinction doesn't exist like that. You know, it's a question of WADA and the ITF and everybody constantly looking and trying to keep up with medicine and trying to look at you know what what can and can't be used. To enhance performance, and by all accounts, this is something that I mean, as I say, up until 2016, completely legitimate for her to take it. But it does seem to be a medication for for angina, is what people are saying, which does sound a bit bizarre.、Um, and yeah, it just it just makes you look at doping, I think, and think about it in slightly different terms about. You know the the moral distinctions that exist and and perhaps in fact don't really exist. And I think we've seen a few cases over the years where certain players have certainly made errors of judgment. I, I, the most recent one that I would think of was Marin Cilic sending his mother out to go and get something from a pharmacy and them not checking the contents of of, of what was in the bottle. And lo and behold, it's it ends up in his system. Now. You know the bottom line is, as I think any athlete would、uh, would accept, if it's in your body, you've got to take responsibility for it, and that is the situation here. That is certainly what Maria Sharapova has been saying in that press conference, and and she was making absolutely no attempt to to back away from that. That element of it, and、uh, we now wait to find out what that will mean for her. Oliver Brown of the Telegraph this evening tweeted that it would be a two-year ban for an unintentional use of the drug, and a four-year ban if it was found to be intentional. So even in the case of a two-year ban, now obviously we we haven't had that ratified. We don't know for sure if that end, will end up being the case. If it was the case. And she said there in the press conference that she wants to play this sport again at the age of twenty-eight, and given the fact that she's she's had some issues physically, that that will take some coming back from. It certainly will, but I think if anybody can do it, it will be her. I think she will be so tremendously motivated. She's such a controlled person. I mean, even in that press conference, she was so remarkably in control of herself, wasn't she? It was it was an incredible.、Um, Display. I mean, display of professionalism. I suppose, ironically,、um, and I think she, above anybody, will want to be、um, 
in control of how she retires from the sport. Just quickly, I, I, if Oliver, if what Oliver Brown has tweeted is correct, I believe the distinction in terms of how long the ban will be exists in whether she took the meldonium, I think it's called, to intentionally enhance, enhance performance with the intention to enhance performance as opposed to whether she took it intentionally with whatever with whatever uh, end goal yeah. in mind um so which i see is quite a, a a big difference in intention because if if again we're going a lot because it's so immediate we're going a lot on what everyone has to say on twitter what what a lot of people seem to be saying is yes this is like many many other drugs a a a, a substance that people do take to enhance performance but legitimately so you know like a like a um a supplement you know medical supplement of that you know it's not a black and white thing but wada have recently decided that actually upon closer examination it should be put on the banned list so that if the question comes down to whether she took it to enhance performance i think that's going to be very interesting and if it's determined that she did intend to enhance performance then four years is a is a very different story to two years in my mind it is indeed and i'll tell you what catherine this will certainly make waves in the locker room won't it the players around the world there will not be a single tennis player right now i don't think that is awake that doesn't know that this announcement by maria sharapova has taken place and one thing I suspect it will lead to is a lot more care taken over looking at the, what the band list actually consists of from tennis players all around the world. Because, as you've said, of all the players in the world that you wouldn't expect to, to make this sort of error and uh, oversight, it is Maria Sharapova. I think it's perhaps going to improve di- uh, diligence on the behalf of all the rest of the players. Yeah, I, I, I can't. I still can't believe that that that's necessary with the stakes being so high and there have been in, enough sort of random cases like the Chilich case over the past few years that you'd think that would be, you know, all all the motivation required to leave no stone unturned and and as as we know, you know that athletes do why understandably take it to the limit of what they're allowed to take what what's within reasonable realms you know what they're allowed to take because why wouldn't you because it is it is a sport of fine margins so with that being the case why wouldn't you keep as close a possible monitor of it as you possibly can so i i can't believe it's still necessary for top level professionals but i mean if it is possible for them to become more diligent then of course they will be they will. I would say, though, humans are human and people do make errors and oversights. It, it is something that happens. Um, I wasn't there when this uh, oversight took place. But as you said, Maria Sharapova has said she failed to check the link that was in the email that she was sent with the information uh, having been changed. And, uh, well, that's as much as we know at this stage. Tell you what, Catherine... This has taken us a bit by surprise, hasn't it? I mean, we we actually recorded a Maria Sharapova retires podcast just in case this afternoon, didn't we? We won't be needing that bit. Yeah, it's such a shame because it was a really nice little uh, segment on Maria Sharapova's retirement. Maybe we'll just um, hold it for two or four or ten years' time, whenever it might be. I mean, there's a huge question mark over the next chapter of her career, isn't there? There is, there is, and it's a, it's a huge shame for the sport, for certainly for her, and um, well, 
What else can we say? That is the situation. But anyway, what we also know is we did record another podcast with some more info in it. And here it is. I'm David Law, joined by Catherine Whittaker at the Putney Exchange Centre. Catherine is here. We'll chat in a moment. But first to the Davis Cup in Birmingham where I was commentating for BBC Radio 5 Live about yet another Andy Murray big moment in his career and afterwards I spoke to the Telegraph's Simon Briggs. Well Simon we've just witnessed another extraordinary Great Britain Davis Cup moment haven't we where uh, Andy Murray looked as though he was running on empty after he lost sets three and four got Britain over the finish line four hours 54 minutes and here we are again talking about Andy Murray and Britain and Davis Cup. Yeah, he's uh, he's just un- incredible. It, it's hard to put into words how he's put these wins together. I mean, he's been in impossible positions in before against Gilles Simon last year. He today he was apparently moving like he had nothing left in the fourth set, and then to come out and break Nishikori three times in a row in the fifth, and then to complete it because Nishikori kept on hitting lines, didn't he? He saved three match points. He's He's just not gone away at any stage of that match with the crowd against him, with Murray de- delivering haymakers you know, f- f- throughout the, the first, second set, even in the third, maybe not in the fourth because he was, he was a little bit um, short of gas in that set. But uh, it was just high, high quality. I mean, it's up there with anything you're going to see in the tennis court. It was. And yet, I think after the, the second set, albeit a very close second set tiebreak where Murray was four love up and it got pegged back and he saved a set point. I think probably after that second set, we would have expected maybe it would have ended after the third. That's what I mean about Nishikori's spirit. I mean, he just didn't seem to look at the scoreboard at all. He just seemed to keep on playing. And he's a gorgeous player to watch, isn't he? I mean, this, those wrists, he just seems to generate so much power. He's only a He's a slight figure, and then he just, um, his forehand for a lot of the match was considerably better than Andy's, you know, and it was Andy's kind of court craft and his ability to go up a level at the right moments that, that sort of saved him, because when Kai got the ball in mid-court when he was dominating the points, he could just manoeuvre it down the line across court without any concern, and he just put the ball where he wanted to under a sixpence, so it was a tremendous performance from Kai as well. It was, and overall, another great moment for British tennis because A, it guarantees a quarterfinal, B, it guarantees another appearance in the world group next year and it's, it all builds, doesn't it? It all helps the momentum. Yeah, and uh, we were watching the Serbia score lines simultaneously. There was, there was this amazing sort of feeling of a swing because at one point Novak was two sets to one down, Andy was two sets to love up and we were like, oh, this is looking tremendous. We playing the Kazakhs in the in the quarterfinal. Then Andy was looked like he was going out, and, and Novak was back on top, and it was like gloom. And then he kind of turned that one around as well. So we ended up with actually what we would have expected at the start of the week, which is the number one and the number two potentially meeting each other in the quarterfinal, schedules allowing. And, and Andy obviously has said that he will play regardless of his other commitments. It's a very busy time of year with the Olympics and Wimbledon. Um, puts the ball in Novak's court. Uh, I would have thought, what's Novak going to do about that as as a man who's not won? Um, uh, an Olympic gold singles medal. Yeah, it's a big ask, isn't it, for him to fit everything in because, of course, he's going for greatness on so many levels at the moment, Grand Slam titles-wise. But that must be very tempting in Serbia to face the defending champions and Andy Murray. I imagine Novak Djokovic would probably fancy that. The hackles of competitiveness would be rising. 
Yeah, and they probably put it on clay, you would have thought, although that's going to add another level of complication if the players are going to go from grass to clay to hard in a matter of weeks in, in three pretty high-profile events. Well, that's an understatement, isn't it? Wimbledon, Davis Cup quarterfinal between Serbia and GB, and then the Rio Olympics. I mean, it's going to be a bonkers summer. I'm, I'm uh, thinking I better get my holiday in early this year because I'm not going to get much during the summer months. <laughs> holiday? This whole job's a holiday. Working <laughs> in tennis for a living, Simon Briggs. We all know it. Um, now... It has been a fascinating Davis Cup weekend in general. I mean, a, a, lot, uh, a lot going on in the Australia-US tie, but ultimately uh, a heck of a win for the United States. If you consider a year ago they were on the end of a, a defeat at the hands of Britain and, and they've gone into the Australian backyard and, and got a win. Yeah, if you look at Isner's stats, I think 49 aces, no double faults, 76% first serves, is it? So, I mean, he's obviously just played lights out. The guy has maybe built, actually, on... The defeat he suffered against James Ward, I think he's built on it. He's kind of used it as motivation. He's, he's, he's used it to, to add steel to his own game. You remember how well he played against Andy here, well, sorry, not here, but in, in Glasgow, in, in this country, I should say, um, 12 months ago. And he's, he's, he's developed from there into a guy who just seems to be leading that team with a lot of charisma and heart because he's not always... In his career, he hasn't always seemed that, that sort of person, but he's become it. He's, he's grown into the real, the real leader of the USA team, and it's, and it's great because he wants the USA to be doing well. And, of course, with the juniors um, turning into the seniors they've got on the side, people like Taylor Fritz uh, coming through, they are on their way back to being a genuinely top-class power in the sport. Now, Catherine Whittaker is here inside the Putney Exchange Centre, the place that we always meet at, whenever possible. Catherine, this is our spiritual home, isn't it? To record the tennis podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. My word, what a week of tennis it's been, and it really did reach a crescendo there in the Davis Cup. It was one of the, one of the great first-round weekends of the Davis Cup that I can remember in recent years, particularly, I think, because we had the top two players in the world competing in it, and in a battle, both of them. I mean, Djokovic coming back from two sets to one down, Murray looking like he was running on empty when he was two sets up and eventually squeezing over the line. But it was exciting. It was. I think, first and foremost, you need to stop name-checking the Putney Exchange until that formal sponsorship agreement is, is signed. I'm not sure they've, they've earned all these name-checks What should we call it? The random shopping centre in Putney that we occasionally use? Yeah, absolutely. That sums it up perfectly. Uh, yeah, it was a very exciting um, Davis Cup weekend. I mean, obviously, the last podcast we were speaking to Andy Murray, and he was obviously completely fired up about it and actually confirmed his commitment to the Davis Cup for the rest of the year depending on what ties there will be well we now know that he will be involved in a tie in a quarterfinal tie in Serbia in July and he's already committed to that which I find amazing Novak Djokovic had hasn't I suspect that he will um and I suspect why I suspect a large part of the motivation is that Andy Murray is playing for GB and it would seem be seen to be ducking out of something to not play. One slight uh, drawback or major drawback and, and something that places a slight question mark for me over being too confident about the fact 
that Djokovic will play is that it would probably mean missing Cincinnati, and that is the only Masters Series title missing from his list. And that's something that no one's ever done before, and we know he wants records. And I think a record that could be just his, you know, one that Federer hasn't got, one that Nadal hasn't got, I think a a record that could be just for him. It's a record that he's got plenty of time to make his own, though, in future years, hasn't it? You say that, but... I mean, he's he's not won it yet. There's always, but he doesn't play his best there. I saw him last year live against Federer, and it, no doubt he doesn't play his best there. And uh, and I, and I think the sooner he can get that under his belt and make sure that title, that record is his, the better. And I know the ATP prepare a big fanfare every year and never gets used because <laughs> he just can't quite come through and win it. So I do think that will be something to consider for him. However. On balance, I think he's going to go for Davis Cup, especially, you know, as it's perfect preparation for the Olympics, which I know he'll be desperate to win this year. That's another thing that's missing from his trophy cabinet. Perfect preparation, though, I suppose that largely depends, to some degree at least, on the surface chosen, doesn't it? Because if they choose a surface different to what they use in Rio then it's, it actually ends up messing up everybody's plans in a way because you go straight from grass, maybe to clay. Andy Murray was talking about he thinks it'll actually be on hard courts in Serbia. Do you know what? I, I do think he'll play as well. And I, I, the reason I think he'll play is I think the competitive instincts will kick in for Novak Djokovic. I think on the whole, over the last 12 months, I think he's reassessed his place in the game and actually become... I hate to use the word selfish because it is a support where you, a sport where you're trying to rack up as many wins and titles as you possibly can get. But I think, generally speaking, he's realised just how close he is now to being able to track down these best players of all time in Federer and Nadal, certainly in terms of Grand Slam titles won. And I think he's started to mould his year around maximising his chances to, to win as many of those as he can. However, I think that this year is different because of the Olympics it's already skewed he's got a chance to win that gold medal that he's never won he's only got a bronze medal of course at the last Olympics but I think in this particular Davis Cup now that he's played the first round now that he's got Andy Murray coming into his hometown I think he will puff out his chest and say all right then bring it on I agree I agree and I think the point about it being his hometown is like you're coming onto my territory I'm going to defend that territory. Um, I think that is a factor. Surface-wise, I think the Serbian Federation will just say to Djokovic, what surface do you want, frankly? So um, it's up to him to choose the surface that will disadvantage GB and Andy Murray the most, which we'd have to say would probably be clay, or whether they go for something slightly more neutral in a hard court that will benefit Djokovic in terms of Olympic preparation and I, th- I think a change of surface at that time of year when you're all, you've already just completed the grass to hard court change I think going back to clay I think I'm, it's incredibly punishing on the body I mean but incredibly punishing on Andy Murray's body as well so that I mean that's a factor and, and Andy has made it clear that it's the change of surfaces that has held him back from playing Davis Cup in the past it's a big it's a big factor for him and his body it takes its toll and it certainly would have no one he is going to play that tie but um lots to consider for Serbia but on balance again I think I think it will be a hard court 
You know what you've just been saying about the surface changes over the years have perhaps decided to some degree what he's decided to play and what he hasn't. I, I agree with you. He's made that clear. I actually think that Andy Murray's priorities are shifting and have shifted quite a bit over the last 12 months or so. The way that he has made Davis Cup title defence a priority is something I did not expect to happen. If you'd have asked me when they won the Davis Cup in November how much he would play this year, I thought he would play the first round and nothing else because I thought he'll try to you know, have that, that moment and, is, and ensure Britain are still in the competition in the World Group next year and then the sensible thing to do would be to reduce the workload, concentrate on winning Grand Slams, try to get to world number one, do the Olympics, you know, there's enough on the plate already. But, you know, I think partly... It is about his personality. I read, I think it was one of Simon's pieces in the Telegraph, uh, about how playing in a Davis Cup team suits his personality as somebody who likes to do things for people that he cares about. He, 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 I think if he sees people that he cares about being attacked in any way or if he feels they're, they're under threat, he, his immediate instinct is to stand up and get in the way. And I think that that suits him in Davis Cup. He's got something else, somebody else to fight for. We heard that passion come out in the way he spoke in your interview a week ago. The other thing, I'm just it started. To- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get me thinking, isn't it about time we in tennis and in the tennis media and as fans of the sport, maybe more generally, I'd be curious to hear what tennis podcast listeners think about this. Isn't it about time we change how we look at tennis a little in terms of what's important in the game, in the things that we remember in the game. You and I, how many times have we sat here at this table talking about, oh, do we think he'll win another Grand Slam? Do we think he'll win another three Grand Slams? How often do we say, do we think he'll win three Davis Cups? Do we think he'll win Olympic gold? Why are Grand Slam titles more important? Is it just our creation is that something is that our version of events and isn't it about time maybe we look at somebody who's saying a bit like Hewitt does and all the great Australians and you know there are certain other players who put Davis Cup ahead of everything maybe Andy Murray is starting in his latter stages of his career to become one of those and perhaps that's something we should be looking at yeah, but you can't engineer that I don't think I mean maybe there is something a bit arbitrary about about what we 
value the most um, ob- objectively from the outside. But um, I mean, it's like, like the Olympics when when tennis first became an Olympic sport, you couldn't magically one day make it matter to the players. Um, and that's evolved over time. You know, when it was first introduced in '88. I mean, there were players that it mattered to more than others, but it certainly had nowhere near the status of a Grand Slam, nowhere near the status that it has now. The status of that tournament within tennis has evolved. You know, it's like the FA Cup in football. People of the generation above me, the FA Cup is the be-all and end-all. I don't... I mean, I'm into it more now that, that Reading seems to be making it their speciality. Hope you're understanding this, Canadian and US followers. Um, uh, I'm assuming you're not that into football. You may well be. So apologies. Um, but it, it's changed and no one can quite put their finger on why it doesn't have the magic and the sparkling. To some people it always will, but but you you can't... Nobody decided the FA Cup's going to lose a bit of its sheen. I mean, obviously, Reading winning it this year will bring back all of that sheen and luster, but... You're going to start I... bringing up that win you had over West Bromwich <laughs> Albion in a minute, aren't you? We so... didn't cover that in the last podcast. But you see what I mean? Nobody's decided that. Nobody's nobody's made any conscious decision. It's just some sort of subconscious evolution within sport. And maybe you can try and start an evolution of all of our thinking, David. And And look, I think we all do value the Davis Cup um, and I think Andy Murray Andy Murray's commitment to it will make an impact, have an impact, I really do um, but I don't think you can suddenly say let's completely reverse engineer our thinking on what matters in terms but, but if you go back over the years, it used to matter more is my point, now part of that is because the top players always used to be unrelenting in their commitment to it, I, I understand that but I just wonder whether we have got it all a little bit wrong our priorities well look it, it is it is an individual sport david it is an individual sport it's wonderful that we are treated to a team competition within an individual sport i think there's absolutely a place for it but at the end of the day this is an individual sport about individual achievement and i think part of what makes andy Murray's commitment so incredible is that he's having to do it around his individual pursuits as well if it was just you know don't really care about grand slams then the davis cup wouldn't be that big a commitment at all it would be you know maximum eight singles matches four doubles matches a year it's the fact that you're juggling that you're committing to it in spite of the fact that your singles career is obviously your number one goal one other thing to mention i think is that i think in part of his thinking this year will be winning that men's doubles titles in Rio with Jamie I remember both of them particularly I think Jamie actually said that's that was the worst moment of his career so far going out in the first round in London with Andy and not many people remember that because Andy went on to win the gold in singles he won the mixed doubles um, silver medal you know a pretty great tournament for Andy Murray but as brothers playing in London they would have had high hopes of that and they they went out in the first round and I think um, they're now a far more well-oiled, far better-oiled doubles team than they were. They'll play one more Davis Cup tie before then. They may even enter a few tournaments together, who knows. Um, and I think they have their eye on at least a medal in Rio as a doubles pairing. I think you're right. Uh, I also think, more generally speaking, Andy Murray's 
probably in his latter stages of his career, not latter stages, but certainly in he's at his peak. You know, I think he's a fully grown man who fully understands his body now. I think he's playing with less fear because he's had the back surgery done. I, I, I think he may be picking and choosing almost a little bit less to some degree in as much as he just believes his body can handle it and he's just pushing on. If he enters something, he's pushing on. He's not saving himself. He's not worrying. He's just playing. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true as well. But then there are, you know, it, there are, w- w- whether he has physically overcome a barrier there or not, and I, I agree with you that he has, there are physical limitations to what he can do. He looked exhausted. Against do you know why, though? The, the reason he looked physically exhausted against Nishikori, apart from the fact that he played four hours and 54 minutes, this man has not been a tennis player for the last five weeks. He's been a dad on paternity leave. His body was not used to playing that. In fact, I think more, more so, his mentality was not used to being in those situations. And he's tired. I tell you, I know what it's like with sleep deprivation. It's blooming horrible. Yeah, I think that's a factor. But it was also a five-hour match that probably would have been quite exhausting, no matter what the circumstances. I yeah, mean. I couldn't handle that. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I was watching it thinking, this... You know, I've, I've said this before on the podcast that I was Andy Murray, certain players, Andy Murray had put Rafa in this category of there's a finite resource of energy, there's a finite physical resource there, and every single match, particularly every, every long, gruelling match, diminishes that resource ever so slightly, like on a computer game where you've got your your lives up in the top. And I was watching that thinking, this is diminishing Andy Murray's finite resource ever so slightly you know this could in a sort of non-direct way impact his chance of winning a slam in in this later this year you know you're not going to be watching him losing a grand slam final and going oh well this happened because of that five set match against Nishikori it's obviously not going to be as simple as that but it it's not going to help it's not going to help these matches him winning a grand slam and he doesn't care he's made that calculation this is important to him and I think you know when I when I asked him about how much the Davis Cup meant to him in the interview last week the, the obviously it does mean a lot to him he was very good talking about that but the first thing he said was I feel a responsibility to the team that's first and foremost why he's committed and that's exactly as you were explaining Simon Briggs that what he was saying about it being a reflection of his character I really, really strongly agree with that. I, I actually, I'm not completely sold on the idea that it hurts his chances in slams. Funny enough, I, I kind of feel as though that positive reinforcement, winning a big match, the 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 feel good vibes that you get from that, the bitter endorphins that it gives you. I wonder whether that will help to carry him on a crescendo of, uh, of future positivity. Catherine's looking at me as if I'm absolutely bonkers. Uh, no great surprise there. Now, elsewhere, uh, I mentioned Djokovic back from two sets to one down. I tell you what, there's a few people that are going to be going to buy in the videotape of that. Do they still use video t- videotapes? Anyway, there'll be a few people trying to get hold of the recording of what Kukushkin was able to do to Djokovic to get him and get him in that sort of trouble, two sets to one down. I couldn't believe my I, I was checking the live scores while I was watching Andy Murray, and I thought there was a mistake um, because Novak Djokovic losing a set is a huge, huge deal at the moment. Novak Djokovic losing a set to Mikhail Kukushkin is a huger deal, and multiply that each of those things by two talented guy though Kukushkin he has done this to top players before he's one of those 
enigmatic players who seems to be able to bring something out that discomforts these guys? Discomfort is the word, I think. I mean, that's the state that Djokovic was in throughout his match against Gilles Simon in Australia. You've got to, you've got to try and make him uncomfortable mentally, physically, somehow. Easier said than done, eh? Easier said than done indeed. But anyway, Djokovic threw well done him. Great win for the United States. I was talking to Simon about that. What we didn't cover are a couple of the side notes there. Uh, One, the fact that that tournament, that match, was apparently meant to be played on a hard court because of an existing agreement dating back to 1999 when they last played. And uh, the tie was held in the United States. And as a result of that, even when it was supposed to be in Australia, and as a result of that, they were giving the, uh, the putting the tie on a, a surface that would have suited the Americans more. Well, in fact, everybody forgot about that deal, including Jim Courier and Leighton Hewitt, the captains, as did the ITF. Everybody's held their hands up, and they played it on grass. And uh, oh, bit awkward, but anyway. <laughs> Well, the fact is, nobody thought it would be 16 years before those two great Davis Cup nations met again. They were meeting every year or every other year. And then suddenly, you know, neither, they've, they've both sort of been in the wilderness years, haven't they, for the last, well, well, slightly different periods. They, their wilderness years haven't exactly coincided. But the fact is, it's taken 16 years for them to meet again in the Davis Cup. And as you say, it's amazing. Jim Courier was had no qualms when the surface was announced and and he was part of the 1999 tie as well and the reason for that i think it was the centenary of the uh of the davis cup which meant that they (laughs) they wanted to make a big event of this uh america versus australia match in the united states so lo and behold that's what they did all those years ago but anyway it's all resolved with the united states winning anyway which to me is quite an upset i'm sorry to say that in my year starting predictions I actually had Australia winning the Davis Cup this year so that one hasn't gone particularly well see your fate lies, face lighting up there Catherine Whittaker uh, now the the fact is that is a very very good win for the United States Isner was awesome yeah he was good on him I mean a, a, a grass court should suit him he should have done far better at Wimbledon and Queens than he ever has done it's it's scandalous that he's he's not done better there um I mean yeah because Tomic was mounting a real fight back in that fourth rubber and he held his nerve and of course you know when holding your nerve having that serve of course helps because you know it is just there any time you need it um to pull out of the bag and it's completely in your hands um but he was a real trooper, and uh, yeah, he, he's becoming a, a real servant for that U.S. Davis Cup team. From bouncing back from what was an absolutely hideous moment in his career, losing from two sets up to James Ward last year. I mean, he says that was you know, that prompted weeks of soul searching. It was it was so low for him. Yeah, and the other side note was the spat that develops between Bernard Tomic and Nick Kyrgios. Tomic being heard to say to Leighton Hewitt during the sit-down that, that he felt Nick Kyrgios was, was crying off with an injury or an illness that, that, that shouldn't have stopped him from playing. Leighton Hewitt, the captain, making very clear that in his view they'd had Kyrgios over to uh, the Davis Cup venue before the tie. They'd given him a fitness test. They'd left it until the Thursday before, uh, making the decision that he just wasn't fit to play. That was Hewitt's very clear view on the subject. 
Nick Kyrgios's hackles clearly rose because he fired off a couple of tweets in the direction it would seem at Bernard Tomic to say, well, hold on a minute, you know, um, shouldn't you have my back is the, the gist of it. And uh, he wasn't too pleased with being called out by Bernard Tomic, but all a bit of a mess. Yeah, I don't think anyone's covered themselves in glory here. Nobody emerges from this looking anything but a bit tarnished, I would say. I mean, none of it's that big a deal. It's all sort of slightly... Pe- I mean, except that they're now out of the Davis Cup, that which is a big deal. They really should be... I mean, I laughed at your failed prediction, but I don't think it was that outlandish. They should be, with the depth that they now have, they should be targeting winning the Davis Cup. This is really disappointing. But in terms of this spat, it all just seems... It seems like boys... It's childish, isn't it? Boys bickering. I mean... I've no idea about the legitimacy of Nick Kyrgios's illness. What I will say is he's not exactly bought himself a lot of benefit of the doubt over the last year. And but neither has Tomic, that's the thing. Well, let me get on to that, David. Um, and, and perhaps he just needs to accept that there are consequences to, to his behaviour and that, that nobody is going to give him the benefit of the doubt for the time being. But look, I have no idea about the legitimacy, so I'm going to leave that there. Bernard Tomic, I mean... Of course he should have his teammates back, even if he has his own reservations. Um, it, I mean, that, he just expressed it at the worst possible moment, in the worst possible circumstances. I know that, you know, tempers, you know, in the heat of a match and he was frustrated and everything, but he's not a child anymore. He's not a teenager anymore. That's just pretty pathetic I think Kyrgios's response on Twitter was pretty pathetic I just think it was all just oh just pretty pathetic in in summary you do know I like a bit of aggro don't you but even I was sort of slightly moved to think come on lads you know sort sort this out in the locker room you know look I mean I'm not saying I think Nick Kyrgios had had um, every reason to feel aggrieved at his teammate sat there on the court on on international telly accusing him of something that he's not in a position to defend himself for and all, all the rest of it I, I I would be annoyed too I'm just saying the way he he dealt with that annoyance was not cool I think you to some degree I can cut a little bit of slack because I don't these are not people that are necessarily going to think through every single thing that they do at any given time they they're not really paid to do that they just sort of play tennis and react at times I think it might be time for uh, to, for their managers agents whatever to take hold of their Twitter account no Twitter's great fun especially when you do polls yeah it's great for us but if I was them I'd be thinking you know perhaps damage limitation time <laughs> maybe uh, now we had some British women doing particularly well over the last uh, week. Uh, as I uh, was discussing with, with Simon Briggs, the opportunities that are out there at the moment, the uncertainty on the, on the women's circuit, and different winners most weeks just at the moment. Great win for Heather Watson, much needed, up to 54 in the world, I think, from, from in the 80s. Huge, but that is an enormous leap in the rankings for winning for winning that tournament. An enormous leap, and that is just what she needed. What stru- I was reading the the match report of the match uh, today because it was was on very late last night, and I didn't have the chance to watch it. Kirsten Flipkins is thirty years old. I remember when she was winning junior Wimbledon and was the um, up and coming player. How did she get to be thirty years old? Don't talk about thirty years old as though it's seventy. For goodness' sake, I'm 
about more than a decade older than that. Um, yeah, that was what struck me first. And then, obviously, I was very pleased with Heather Watson. She'll, it's still not a high enough ranking that she won't have to play qualifying for, for a lot of events. But luckily, she's got this wild card into Indian Wells. The bad news is she's got fourth-round points to defend from last year. But then that's an indicator that she plays really well there. And she's going in on confidence. She's still got no coach. Um, but that seems to be going okay for her. Her mum came on as on-court coach last night, did an amazing job on Mother's Day. She was 2-5 down, was Heather Watson. I think she won about 10 of the next 12 games. Yeah, and that led me to ask the question, probably very easily answered via the WTA rulebook, Are you, do you have to nominate a person before a match as a designated coach, or can you just say... I want to speak to that bloke over there in the crowd. Could you no, before a match, you have to sign them in, who you're going to have as your on-court coach. So, Catherine Whitaker, unless somebody suddenly has great faith in you, having listened to you on the tennis podcast, you're clean out of luck. Now, last week, tennis lost one of its greatest and most popular writers and broadcasters. Bud Collins was 86, and for several decades he reported on tennis for the Boston Globe, commentated for television, and became the face of the sport for American audiences on Breakfast at Wimbledon on NBC. He covered 44 Wimbledon championships and produced the Tennis Encyclopedia, the Bud Collins History of Tennis. Sue Barker, a French Open champion in 1976 and now a BBC presenter, remembers him well. It was always fun being interviewed by Bud because you never really knew what was coming next. He wouldn't ask you the, the normal sort of questions about how good was your forehand or the backhand. He'd always have some sort of weird question he'd want to ask you. So we always enjoyed our interviews with Bud because you just never knew what was coming next. But you also knew that he knew so much about the game. His knowledge was almost second to none. So you trusted him as well, whereas so often you get interviewed by people and you think, where did that question come from? You knew that this was always going somewhere. So hugely respected journalist. But he was also not just a journalist. He became a friend of everybody. He was just... You could laugh with him, have fun with him. You could tell him things and you knew it wouldn't go any further. He was you know, really trusted as well. So, uh, um, no, he, he was lovely and it, it was always a joy to be interviewed by him because he'd take you to an area that you never thought you were really going to and it was always fun going on that journey with him. And fun to watch him, I imagine. I mean, somebody that stepped into the, the broadcasting world as you did and, and he made the, the step from written journalist into the broadcasting world and there was nobody else quite like him, was there? No, and, and, and working at Wimbledon, you know, he'd be doing the interview as well, so we'd be down in that room and he'd be going, Barker, why are you doing this? What, what are you going to say to this? I'm going to ask him this, I'm going to do it. You know, he was always just, uh, just, just sort of full of life. But you know, again, he was, he was so watchable on TV. You know, I, I lived in America I have a home in America still and uh, you know so I've seen a lot of, of what Bud does on television you know which we don't get a chance to so often in the UK but uh, he, he was always a larger than life character and uh, his his interviews you know in the same way that he did it for, for his print journalism for, for television it, it was uh, he was certainly very very watchable but but always a, a really big supporter of people like I mentioned we would be in this room before Wimbledon he would always be encouraging me and, and helping me and, and saying oh I saw your interview with so-and-so the other day and and if he had some words of advice or you know if he thought it was good or he thought I could have done this or and that was really important because so often you know people don't give you a lot of feedback but I think because we'd you know come through so many years together and then doing the same sort of job there was almost like a 
you know, they're, they're a sort of camaraderie, really, that I'm not sure that I, I would get from, from anybody else. So a really, really special man, but just always fun to meet, always had a story, always um, an entertaining few minutes. I used to love spending time with Bud and uh, very, very sad to, to see hear he's passed. Simon Reid of Eurosport had the chance to share a commentary box with him. I did, because, I mean, normally you have... A, a, a lead commentator and a, what we'll call a colour commentator, but let's say it's an expert commentator. And we thought, well, why not bring in, because Bud was around, why not bring in Bud as, as a literal colour commentator to just give a, a, a little alternative view of things and actually spice it up because his choice of language was extraordinary and his perception was extraordinary too. One, one thing I, I also remember about him is that he, he wanted the best for tennis the whole time. And if he saw players going out of line in a fatherly way, he'd tell them that really wasn't up to scratch. And, and he would say that on air as well. And, uh, but bring a bit of humour to it too. I mean, he had a, a fantastic choice of words. He sure did. And in recent times, they've named the, the media room after him at the US Open. And I think that that is particularly fitting because... It always seemed to me that he had actually time for everybody he came across. It didn't really matter who they were, how much they'd done in the game. He treated everybody pretty much the same. Absolutely. I first met him in Seoul in 1988 when I was doing the Olympics for ITV. And I ha- sat next to him. And I, to be honest, I'd just started in tennis, didn't know who I was sitting next to. But he, he had a word or two and we got in discussion. And as you say, he was so helpful to me. It was uh, very generous of of thought and uh, and indeed deed you know he would find he would tell me things i needed to find out he would he would just point me in the right direction all the time and uh, yeah he's a really sad loss because not only was he a fantastic communicator good commentator wonderful writer but that character there's there's no one who comes close really and it's it's almost symptomatic of the way that tennis is going it, it, it is more corporate it is more business-like and and maybe the likes of bud collins will never happen again which is very sad my own memories of bud collins are a man of boundless enthusiasm humor and the loudest most colorful trousers you've ever seen in your life plus he was such a warm man i remember being a 20-something novice and nobody when I saw him in the press room for the first time. He was already a big star so it was with a lot of trepidation that I introduced myself to him for the first time and he was there with a firm handshake of welcome, words of encouragement and whenever our paths crossed he was always happy to give a bit of advice. The US Open named the press room after him in a ceremony at last year's US Open Championships. There can be no better tribute as that's where he loved to be. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.